If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 2, and while you're doing that, we uh, love outdoor services. It's a little bit of our heritage as a church. I come from um, uh, outdoor services all the time at Calvary Chapel Corvallis, and just in an effort to just do our best to try to get out and spread out as much as we can, provide space. Uh, just about every Saturday this summer, we're going to be um, meeting outdoors, especially here at the Les Schwab Amphitheater. Uh, stay tuned to our Facebook page. Not everyone will be catered food. Some will be bring your own picnics. So uh, we'll, we'll have a calendar for that up for you on our Facebook page as well. So John chapter 2 is where we're at. And we're going to be in verse 13, and I'm going to read verse 13 through 25. If you want to stand, you don't have to. If you want to stand, there's a good chance to stretch your legs, and uh, I'll read the passage for us. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Lord, this passage today, I know it's got incredible application for us, is the 2020 church. And so I pray you would press this into us. But Lord, even more than that, we would be able to see you, Jesus, as the hero that the world has been waiting for. And even today, in the midst of all the awful and crazy and confusing things we've got that we deal with on a regular basis now, we can still look to you as the champion, as the hero, as our savior, and as our hope. So refresh that in our hearts today. Maybe for some, for the first time today, you would be their hope. And maybe for some, we would just refresh that our, you are our desire, you are the savior, you are the great light. So be that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. This last Thursday night, I got a call from our neighbor, uh, the church's neighbor to the east of us. And you may remember, we've been praying for this neighbor. Uh, things have been rocky in this new relationship that we've had. And our prayers are being answered. There's a relationship being built between the husband and the wife, and it's been kind of special. 
And uh, she called the other day to let us know that our wind, a couple of windows had been left open at the church and that they'd been flying open and then she'd go push them shut and then they'd fly open again. And so uh, Lindsay and I ran down there to shut those windows and, and as I'm shutting them, she kind of went out in her yard and she's like, hey, are you there? And I opened the window and kind of talked and she said, oh, there's some scary looking guys coming around and I don't know, like they've been kind of asking me weird questions and I just am afraid that... Um, so they've been like sneaking in those windows and maybe hanging out in there and stuff. And so I was like, all right, I'll check, you know, and no big deal. And thinking they didn't come in here, you know. And so I closed the window and then I realized how dark it is in the church um, <laughs> at night. No big deal, you know. I know this church from corner to corner every inch. And so I began walking around and turning on every light that I can and looking through and all the deep closets and recesses. And I find that. The deeper I go into the church, the scarier it is. And that when you open doors, that the pressure from this door causes this other old door to squeak and creak, you know. And, and my heart started beating, and I thought maybe I should call Lindsay just in case there's a murderer in here. <laughs> that she'll run in and rescue me. And this is just how it, we're going to be our own Dateline NBC episode of, you know, pastor dies, you know, all of this great stuff. And I finally make it out and, and uh, shut the door and no, no murderers in there. And then I drive around the church and as I'm driving around, there's a light on in the church. And I was sure that I'd shut all the lights off. So I got to pull back in the church parking lot again and get out and muster up a bunch of courage again and then go into uh, the church and, and shut it off and kind of be like, if you're in here, God knows you're going down. <laughs> But the funny thing is about this is that one of our American heroes, Theodore Roosevelt, used to be terrified of going into the Metropolitan Church by himself as well. This is the Rough Rider, right? This is the, the Bull Moose dude, right? This is, this is Teddy, Theodore Roosevelt. When he was a little kid, his mother, Mitty, noticed that he was deathly terrified to go into the church and to be anywhere in the building by himself growing up. And she just couldn't quite figure it out that uh, he was terrified. And she began to find out that he was terrified of something called the zeal. Okay? Something called the zeal. It, and he would say it's something that crouches in the dark corners of the church ready to jump out at me. And when she asked what the zeal might be, he said, I don't know, it's something like some sort of alligator or maybe like a dragon, and it's just waiting to get me. And Minnie is like, I, I don't know where this is coming from. And so she starts to hear that he had he'd gotten this idea from some Sunday school lesson that he'd heard, and she still can figure out. So she gets a concordance out, and she looks up the word zeal. And she looks through every passage with zeal, and she reads it to little Teddy, and he's like, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And then they finally get to this passage from John chapter 2, where it's written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the zeal is real. I witnessed the zeal this week, okay? My knees were shaken. And this is the passage that we're at. This passage that's crazy from Psalm 69.9, quoted here in John chapter 2. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. It's a prophecy of the Messiah. Now, if you know much about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
You know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Sin or sync, meaning that they're similar. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there's very similar accounts. But John, the evangelist, writes a gospel that's just a little bit different and, and comes at it from a different direction and, and focuses on different things. And the interesting thing is we all know the story about Jesus cleansing the temple. And if you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll know that that follows after uh, the triumphant entry at the end of the gospel towards Passion Week, just about five days before Jesus would be crucified. And yet here we are in John chapter 2, and we have the story of the cleansing of the temple happening early on in Jesus's ministry. Now, there's a couple different opinions on this, and to dive into it all would be a whole nother sermon, maybe of not that much importance. And so I'm just going to go ahead and share with you that in my opinion and in my studying, I believe that there were two separate cleansings of the temple, that Jesus did two separate cleansings. One of them here was early on in his ministry, and it was for a different purpose than that which happened later on in his ministry before he would die. Okay, uh, and so you might just find that to be a fun fact. They are separate uh, cleansings and that and separate things are focused on within those two different cleansings uh, It's not all that bizarre to think of Jesus having to do the same thing Twice in his ministry here on earth. We just learn so well, don't we? We pick it up the first time whenever the Lord says something um, And uh, and it doesn't appear that they they learned much from this first cleansing But let's go ahead and get into it in uh Verse 13, John chapter 2, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John the evangelist never wants it get, to get old for us as to why Jesus came. Jesus came so that he would lay his life down as a ransom for our sins. In the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats were uh, sufficient to provide a covering for sin, but they all pointed to the true and better sacrifice that would come, Jesus himself, who would offer himself up as a lamb to be slain, not to just cover over our sin, but to take away our sin once and for all and forever. Is anybody thankful for that? I am sure thankful that my sin has been taken away and I bear it no more because Jesus carried it at the cross. My heart jumps for joy thinking about that, even though I don't have very many sins for him to take. Just a few little ones. Okay. I know. I've got a lot of friends that do a lot of life with me, and they know me a little too, too good for that. And so John wants us to know and keep in mind that, that Jesus observed the Passover. He did this ever since he was a youth. It was a regular thing that he was brought up to do. And imagine being brought up to do something that was pointing towards the life that you would live. Jesus was brought up observing Passover, for he would be the Passover lamb. Now, if you're familiar with Passover, it comes from Exodus chapter 12. The uh, Israelites, the children of Israel, had been slaves of Egypt for 400 years until God rose up Moses to deliver them. And after all sorts of plagues and signs and wonders, finally the final wonder would be this night of Passover that would secure Israel's freedom. 
And on that night, every Israeli family, all of the Jewish homes, were to take a pure and spotless lamb uh, and, and to sacrifice that lamb and to prepare it to be eaten in a special way. They would take the blood of that lamb and they would uh, take a hyssop branch and go to the doorpost of their house and they would cover their doorpost with the blood of the lamb. So that that evening and that night when the angel of the Lord came through Egypt, every home that had the blood of the lamb covering the door would have their firstborn son protected and spared. But every home that did not have the blood of the lamb covering their house would have their firstborn child struck dead. And so that evening, all of Israel covered the doors of their home with the blood of the Passover lamb. All of the Egyptian pagan families did not. And by the following morning, there was a great cry. There was great mourning. Because all of the Egyptian, including Pharaoh's firstborn son, had all been struck dead by the angel of the Lord. But there was much rejoicing in the protection of God through the blood of the Lamb. All of that was a foreshadowing of the, the wrath of God passing over us because Jesus' blood covers us. And so in that same passage in Exodus chapter 12, it should be on your Proclaim app as it flashes up. Verse 14, it says when they would, would have a Passover feast every year, that this day would be to you as a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And then as you jump down to chapter 12, verse 26 of Exodus, it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this feast or this service? And you shall say, it's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people would bow their heads and worship. Okay, so this yearly feast all was a remembrance of God's deliverance from Egypt. And then this, this season that Jesus is in, it's about to be fulfilled by the man himself, Jesus who would offer up his life so that his blood would cover everyone who believes and the wrath of God would pass over that individual. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate that feast for that was what he was brought up to do. Uh, as these individuals would head up to Jerusalem, uh, it was requirement that everyone within a 15 mile radius would take the time to go up to the, to the Passover feast Something that they had to do if they were 20 years old and older, all of the males, they would have to head to the temple and pay a special temple offering that was designed to be part of the maintenance of the temple. And so they would go, and uh, oftentimes two men would partner up and go in halvesies to purchase this special silver coin that, that was the requirement to pay this temple fee so that the temple could be uh, continue to be maintained. Uh, and so these 20-year-old men and older, they would go, they would partner up, they would get this gold coin, they would offer it up, and then they would offer up a Passover lamb as a sacrifice, and they would worship there. And so in verse 14 of our text today, Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. 
All right, so we already have established that there's a good chance that Jesus will go into this temple two different times to do a cleansing, okay? And so Jesus goes in this first time, and he sees something off. He sees something wrong. He sees that this place that should be a place of worship has become a marketplace. It should be a place of worship. It should be a place of evangelism for all the nations to come and know the God of Israel and be saved from their sins. But instead of a great missionary hub taking place, instead of a place where the glory of God is dwelling, instead of a place where confession of sin is being made, there's the sound of mooing and bleating and coins. And, and it's just, it looks like... Uh, uh, some sort of strip mall, or it looks like, you know, uh, some sort of marketplace. It does not have the vibe today of a place of worship. And that is something that is very offensive to Jesus at this moment. And what he sees is he goes into the temple, and, and it's believed that this was all taking place in the outer courts of the temple. The outer courts of the temple was the place where the Gentiles or the non-Jews would come to worship God and to know the God of Israel. It's a very missional place, a missionary place. And yet in these outer courts, instead of missions happening, uh, there's a sour taste in Jesus' mouth as he sees some sort of uh, car lot, used car lot happening uh, out in the outer courts of the temple. As you are coming up to Jerusalem uh, for your worship experience, a lot of times you could purchase a, a lamb or a goat or a, or a bull within your journey, okay? And so if you were farther away, you might get a good price on a, on a lamb. You might get a good price on the silver. Uh, the name of the silver piece is escaping me. It's a foreign word to me. Um, you might get a good deal on the exchange rate uh, for the uh, little coin. But the closer you got to Jerusalem, the more you saw the prices for those lambs and rams and coins going up until you find yourself in the outer courts of the temple and you find that the prices are sky high, right? And you know how it is. It's like, hey, you're going to Europe or you're going to Nepal on a trip and you want to get some wireless earbuds, noise canceling for your journey. Best place to buy it, Amazon.com. Get them prime, get them on sale, have them shipped to you months before your journey. You're going to be riding in style on that plane. The worst place to want to buy wireless earbuds is where? In the airport, right? You know, duty free or whatever. Yeah, right. I'll pay the duty. Just give me a better deal on some earbuds, okay? Same thing. You're at the moment of sacrifice. The price is way up. You know, you're not getting a great deal. In fact, part of the thievery that would happen that Jesus yells about later on in the Gospels is that you would come and you would, uh, as your the priest inspects your lamb, they would find all kinds of blemishes and things wrong with it so that the thing you purchased outside Jerusalem isn't good enough. You've got to buy one of our uh, priest's inspected rams, you know, which is 10 times the price. In fact, it's known that the silver coin that you buy in the temple would be 12.5 times the price of the one that you might purchase uh, down by Jericho or in Nazareth or something like that. So 
Later on in the Gospels, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he shouts out about the thievery going on. Right now, it's not so much about the thievery. It's more about just that it's a marketplace. I'm hearing mooing. I'm hearing bidding. I'm hearing bartering going on. And I'm not hearing a lot of blessed be the name of the Lord. You are good. You are good. And your love endures. And you know what? That's what the Lord desires. He wants to hear the worship of our hearts. And so place doesn't look like a place of worship, looks like a place of business. And so Jesus is going to bring some correction to that. All in pr prophetic fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. Why don't you go to Malachi chapter 3? It's the last book of the Old Testament. Or check out your Proclaim app on your phone. Only $2.99 in the Apple Store. I'm kidding, it's free. If you pay me $2.99, I'll install it for you and show you how to use it. Okay. Oh, sorry, Lord. A little bit of marketplace going on here. He doesn't like that. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is prophetic of Jesus. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So it's known that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of the messenger, or rather of the Lord. We know John the Baptist uh, prepared the way as the Lord came uh, he brought a refiner's fire and a purifying soap uh, to the temple this day it's also prophesied of in Zechariah 14 21 which says yes every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them in that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite which if you have the ESV or the New Revised Standard, it says a trade a tradesman, which speaks of the people selling in the, in the uh, temple court there. There will no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts. So this is all prophecy of Jesus cleansing out uh, the temple here, okay? And if you know your Zechariah, you know Zechariah 14, the verses just before that all have to do with all of the nations coming and worshiping at the house of the Lord. And we know that this is a future event after the second coming of Jesus, that one day all the world will come and worship there, and there won't be this marketplace mumbo-jumbo that Jesus had to correct here in John chapter 2. Okay. And so, verse 15 shows us how Jesus is going to purify it all. When he had made a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. 
So I love this. Somehow Jesus had grown up making friendship bracelets and bridles and all kinds of great rawhide, you know, whips and things. He had done his duty braiding, and he knew how to, like, whip up a whip of cords. No pun intended. He whipped one up, okay? He somehow weaves together this stranded whip of cords, like all of us would know how to do at any moment. And I got to say, you know what? All of my heroes have always known how to use a good whip, right? Indiana Jones, okay? If you're a man from Snowy River fan, Jim Craig, hello, my whole life I wanted to swing one of those things. I had one growing up. I could never, I just whipped myself, so I, I gave up on that. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, most good drovers around here, you know, Jesus becomes a drover there in the moment. He becomes a man that knows how to move some, some animals. He is that shepherd. And uh, around here in Prineville, you guys know that many good cowboys, they've got good cow dogs, right? And they just send their dogs out wide, wide, left, left, whoa. You know, I'm trying to remember all the things that Alan and Joe say when they're out there and, and Chris. You're like, no, no, whoa, boy, come back, whoa, boy. Oh, oh, gosh, no, oh, get the gun. Okay. That's usually how it goes, right? But Jesus didn't have any border collies or Australian shepherds there with him. But he, got, he had this whip, man. He whips it out, and he begins to drive out not only the, the lambs, not only the oxen, but the people, too. So these people are trying to get their coin collection together. I'm going. I'm going. Oh, okay, okay. You know, and the, and the coin box falls over. There's the sound of mooing and baying and, and boxes falling over here as Jesus cleanses this temple. And uh, as the good old song from the 80s or 90s says, when a problem comes along, you must whip it, whip it right? <laughs> and so Jesus does just that. You know, we're in the Gospel of Mark and Polina, and so we've recently taught about the second cleansing of the temple. And there's a lot of critics out there that, are, that, that think that Jesus was just, you know, he was in the wrong when he did this. Both occasions, just, you know, what was his deal? This was not a good representation of the love of God. It seems that Jesus is angry here. How can Jesus be angry? If God is love, how can he get angry? But, you know, it's said that genuine love is compatible with anger. In fact, genuine love is sometimes demonstrated by anger. At times, our anger proves that our love is authentic. John Borchert wrote that spineless love is hardly love. And so Jesus, he, he is stirred up within him. Zeal for his house has consumed him. It's eaten him up. And so he has a love for his father and that fuels the anger at the temple's corruption. And here he doesn't lose his temper. He's not out of control. He doesn't fly off the handle. But he does do a purging. And he is in control. And however he does this, it's got to be known that in about a 12-acre parcel of land that was the temple mount and the temple court, that Roman Antonia Fortress overlooked those courts. And it was just two flights of stairs for Roman soldiers to get down. 
and quell any major riots that were happening among the Jews. So whatever Jesus did, it never alerted the Roman soldiers to rush out and take him away and arrest him. You know, in, in, in millions of people that are on this 12-acre parcel, however Jesus does it, he does it just enough to make the point and do the purifying, okay? And so, uh, so Jesus sees this problem on the Temple Mount. He does this cleansing, and he does it because the hearts of the people around the temple had become lukewarm, They've become focused on the wrong thing. They've become more concerned about the matters of profit than the matters of worship. And as R. Kent Hughes writes, the way we worship reveals what we think about God. Okay? And so it's important to, for us as ministers, for us that are providing this service to y'all, as well as you all who are serving within the church and coming to be blessed, how are our hearts before it? Are we here to confess sins, be made right with God? Are we here to worship God and behold his glory? Are we here to take his glory from here to the nations so they can know the saving ways of God and be blessed by knowing Jesus Christ and having their sins forgiven? Are we here to be cleansed and are we here to make clean? Or are we here for some sort of show? Are we here for some sort of profit? Are we here for some sort of fame? There's all kinds of ways that we can apply this to a lot of what we see going on in the church today. But I think in most simplistic form, let's keep the main things the main things. That's the glory of God. That's the cleansing and confession of sin. That's his righteousness among us. That's his mission to the world. Uh, that's making disciples here and there as we behold his glory. And so after this great dramatic event of the cleansing of the temple, it says in verse 17, then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so it's most likely believed that it was after Jesus died and rose again that it came to the disciples' mind. That's the then that it's referring to. That John is writing about, man, a little bit later we were sitting there and we're like, man, I was reading Psalm 69 today. Remember when Jesus went in the temple and he just like weaved up that whip real quick and was just Indiana Jones in it on everybody? Like, man, that's, that's really like fulfilling Jesus, isn't it? The interesting thing is Psalm 69 not only speaks about the zeal consuming the Messiah, but there's a secondary prophecy there in Psalm 69.9 that Paul refers to in Romans 15. In Psalm 69.9, part B, it says that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Also, uh, a prophecy of Jesus. All of the reproach towards sin that would have been on all of you here in Prineville went upon Jesus at the cross. Jesus was our substitution. It should have been us receiving the wrath of God towards sin. But Jesus went and willingly laid his life down so that we could be free. And so what we have, you guys, there's something beautiful. Um, and Tim Keller was the guy that kind of coined the phrase. And the, the phrase is that Jesus is the true and better hero of the Bible. Okay? So whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across heroes, I want to tell you that it's that hero is not about you, okay? 
A lot of us like to put ourselves in the place of David going up against our giants. And well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to muster up some strength and I'm going to go tackle my giants. And, and we can see from every hero in the Old Testament, those are all types and foreshadowings of Jesus who would come and be a better hero. He would, he would match David strength for strength in every way, but he would go even further and be even better in that case. He's going to be a true and better Esther, a true and better Abraham. He's a true and better priest. Anything that is good and a champion in the Bible, you find that fulfilled in Jesus who accomplishes it, but more so. Okay, and so David wrote about having a real care for the house of the Lord, for the tabernacle, and he had a heart to even build a temple someday. That's how much that David wanted it. And his son, the prophesied Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes on the scene, and he says, oh, I ain't just going to talk about it. <laughs> Zeal for the house of the Lord has completely eaten me up. In fact, I'm going to make a whip. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to overturn money's tables. I'm going to drive animals out. I'm going to give a guy a little towel snap on the butt, you know, just to get him on out of here to show that this place should be a house of worship, a house of prayer for all nations. I am, as much as David was consumed with it, I am more so, okay? So in saying in, in this, he is the true and better Jesus. Um, and so let's... Move on along here. Verse 18. And so the Jews see all of the commotion. And they answer and they say to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? You got to give the Jews some credit here. Okay? Uh, if someone were to show up here today and just kind of cause a fuss and kind of cause a ruckus, like rolls on up with 12 of his buddies, and then he just comes on in and starts tipping canopies over and getting the soundboard and just tipping it over, you know, and going over and taking spoonfuls of our fettuccine mexicana or whatever it's called, you know, and, and you, someone would probably be like, hey, can I help you, you know, or what's up, man, you know, and, and that's essentially what's going on here. But at this point already, people had begun noticing in Jesus that there was something special about him, okay? There's something about him that this might be the guy we've been waiting for. And so as they go up and they approach Jesus, they're, they're actually doing something that they should probably do. Like, who are you and, and what's going on? Like, do you have some sort of sign, a miracle from heaven that you can give us to show that you're like the one we've been waiting for, that, that really should have the authority to do something like this here in the temple? Now, the problem with how they do this in their examination of him is that they don't do any self-examination, okay? In that when this is all happening, sheep and oxen are being driven out, guys are running, money's falling on the ground. No one goes, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right here. You know what? This looks a lot different than it did when I was growing up, coming to the temple, going to Sunday Shabbat you know, or Shabbat school, I guess it would be called, you know, the Sabbath school. This looks a lot different. This looks a lot more like a Saturday's market than, than a worship, a place of worship. Man, man, something's right here in this guy. They don't have that kind of self-reflection, okay? Um, 
The first thing they should have asked is, was this necessary, okay? But the second problem with their question was that asking for a sign or a miracle was kind of misguided. They didn't need more of a sign than what they just had happen in front of them. I mean, the guy that they'd already been hearing about comes on in, who'd already been working all kinds of wonders and had been had been taught by John the Baptist to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And he comes on the Temple Mount and he does something that's just incredible by performing this cleansing, this great corrective rebuke to the children of Israel, especially to the leaders at the temple. That was their sign. They didn't need much more of a sign. But Jesus says, you want a sign Here's your sign. Chapter 2 of John, verse 19, Jesus answers and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So one of the signs of, who, that, of Jesus saying, or rather that Jesus is who he says he is, is the resurrection of Jesus. All right, And that's true to this day. Are you looking for a sign that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's bona fide Savior and Lord, that he is someone that you should surrender your life to and follow with every ounce of your being? Then I challenge you to investigate the resurrection. Such great evidence can be really what's called by many scholars the best proved fact in history. And as much evidence as there is that Jesus is not dead, but risen from the dead, no one else has done that, only Jesus. As much mountains of evidence as there is that skeptics have actually believed in Jesus after trying to prove that he didn't rise from the dead, that's not the point. The point is that Jesus was fulfilling scripture and prophecies of the Messiah. That he was fulfilling his own words here in the resurrection. You destroy my body, I'm going to rise it up on the third day. This, this is the sign that Jesus says will validate all of his claims to be both the Savior of the world and the Lord of the universe. And in Matthew chapter 12 verse 38 and Luke chapter 24 verse 44, Jesus gives uh, more um, instruction concerning the resurrection and how that was the sign. In fact, in Luke 24, 44, uh, it's after his resurrection, and there's the two walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus, the resurrected Lord, shows up to him and begins to expound from the whole of scriptures how it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and rise from the dead so that salvation and forgiveness of sins could be preached locally in Jerusalem, regionally in Judea and Samaria, and then to the farthest parts of the earth. The resurrection, you guys, was prophesied in Scripture, was the sign that Jesus says he is who he is, and also the resurrection is our hope that we too won't stay dead in the ground, but we will be resurrected and have an eternal life with the Lord in a glorified body as well. The resurrection is also hope when you read the New Testament that all of the stuff that you're going through in your life right now that's a down point, including coronavirus, including all, kind, including all kinds of civil unrest, 
including your health problems, including your relational options, uh, 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 problems, all of those things that are just downers in your life right now, consider them your cross because Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the dead and he wants to work all of these problems of your life out with resurrection power and hope. Philippians chapter 3 talks about that. You know the sufferings of Jesus. You're also going to know the suffering or rather the glory of the resurrection as well. And so Jesus says, here's your sign. Destroy my body. It'll be risen again in three days. In verse 20, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. The reconstruction of the temple to be the form that it was in Jesus's time had begun with Herod the Great in 19 BC. So 19 years before Jesus was born, the temple was uh, was worked on. It only took 10 years to get it to a usable state. But then ever since, uh, they had been working on it, working on it, working on it. And they're going to continue working on it after Jesus dies till about six years before the Romans will just tear it all down again in 70 AD, right? And Jesus is, is going to use that as a prophecy as well later on. But Jesus uses the temple as an example of it will be destroyed but be rebuilt. And, it, and then it's going to go on to say in the next verse, verse 21, but he was actually speaking of the temple of his body. And so the Jews in their response, they're missing the eternal aspect of what Jesus is doing. They're rather looking at the temporary temple around them. And man, it took 46 years. Like, this is crazy for you to think you'll do it in three days. But you know what the point is? Jesus is God, the creator of the universe. Created all that in just a couple days with just the breath of his mouth. He could do it in three hours if he wanted to. He could do it in three minutes if he wanted to. He's God. He's getting that a point, uh, point across to the Jews here. In verse 22 of our text, Therefore, when Jesus had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. And so after Jesus was risen from the dead, then his disciples began to remember. Like, oh man, remember when we were here? Remember when we were on the Temple Mount? Remember when we were in Galilee? Remember when we were in Caesarea Philippi? And Jesus was giving us all these warnings about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, that his friends would betray him. But don't worry, I won't stay dead. I'll rise from the dead. Man, how were we not seeing that back then? But now that he's risen from the dead, we're picking up on it. And we have a lot of hope and a lot of boldness. And so they believed the scripture after Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they write about the signs and the wonders of Jesus, it's almost with the tone of, you know, um, don't get focused on signs, okay? Don't get distracted with signs, all right? Signs are not the end, and so just, they don't, the other Gospels don't make a big deal about the signs um, in the way that John does. John actually writes his Gospel in a way that almost says, you know what? 
Signs can certainly be a danger. People following the signs and wonders movement, man, they get so distracted. They get so away from the word of God. But John is an evangelist. And he just says, you know what? If signs and wonders are going to bring people to Jesus, I'd rather have them come with signs and wonders. And then we'll work through the discipleship of dealing with maybe some immaturity on their part there. Then just never have them believe in Jesus at all. And so he's going to reference, he did it um, concerning the water and the wine that we studied last week, and he's doing it now, where John says, you know what, the signs that Jesus did, including the driving of the people out from the temple, these were all things that fostered faith in people's heart. Fostered faith in people's heart. In fact, in uh, John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says, but I have a greater witness than John's for the work which the Father's given to me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So when Jesus would do signs and great works, they would all bear witness of who Jesus was and that he was under the authority of the Father's. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. So all of these miracles and signs, they were attesting, they were witnessing that Jesus really was God and the Savior of the world. Now the problem is, is that many people do what Charles Spurgeon said, we see the signs but we see not him, okay? A sign is called a sign because it's a sign, all right? A sign is not the end of itself. A sign is just something along the journey that points you where you're to go. And so the signs that the Lord does, and even today when there are miracles and there are healings and there are wonders, and I believe that they happen today, those are not the end in and of themselves just to create hype but rather they're to point people to Jesus, who is the true and better sign. He is salvation. He is life. He is hope. And so we want to be careful that we see the sign and we see him. This uh, latest season in our church, we've been doing what we call the signs of life outreach. And I encourage you to come out the first and the third Saturdays of the month, 3.30 down at Pioneer Park. We've got all sorts of signs that just say the gospel of Jesus. They're not political. They're just about the kingdom of God. They're about the hope that's in Jesus. And we're holding up these signs as people come through. And we're bringing verse of hope and encouragement that come through the gospel to the town of Prineville. And we were making a joke the other day uh, at our first uh, signs of life. Uh, because my son had a sign, and it was the windiest day of the year. I mean, figures, you're going out for a sign outreach, and then it's a hurricane coming through, you know? You're blown away. And my son lost his sign, and it goes into 3rd Street, begins to blow out into the intersection of Elm and 3rd by Tasty Tree. And uh, Deb, my neighbor, Deb Bratz, and I were laughing like, oh, Lord, pick that sign up and just stick it to the front of someone's windshield while they're driving through town so that their testimony could be, you know, how did you get saved and come to know Jesus? Well, I saw a sign. You know? I will really talk. No, it was a, a sign, right? Slapped on my windshield. And then we were joking again. It happens almost every week. It's the pun of the hour. 
Uh, when uh, we were in Corvallis this week at a pastor's conference, about uh, eight of us went up there to Calvary Corvallis and the elders and elders in training, and we, uh, we were being encouraged. And Calvary Corvallis has heard about our Signs of Life outreach. My brother-in-law actually heard about it, and he felt called to do it. So he brought it to Calvary Corvallis, and now I think they had 80 people out. Uh, I think it was yesterday, something like 80 people out doing Signs of Life in Corvallis. The whole pastor's conference went out with their wives. Uh, there was something like another 80 people out that day uh, and just preaching the gospel through signs down on 9th Street and Circle Street in Corvallis. And, of course, Prineville, because we're so savvy with the sign ministry, we were in charge of packing all the signs down to the street. Okay? And, uh, you know, Courtney had a bit of a bad attitude at the moment, and we were all trying to encourage her to just, you know, be joyful with the joy of Jesus and Right when she was flipping some lip, a sign hit her on the foot, and she about broke her ankle. And I said, Courtney, it's a sign, sister. It's a sign. And so we prayed for her, and she's here today. Praise the Lord. Let's give Courtney a hand. Just Way to hear the sign, Courtney. I'm going to really pay for that later. But Now, hop into verse 24. We're wrapping up here. Verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And so we have something great happening. We have people believing in Jesus. We have people uh, seeing the signs. But they're a bit fickle. Like many of us, they're prone to wander. And while the men had committed themselves to Jesus, Jesus has not yet committed himself to the men. Because he knew them. He knew that in just a couple chapters, he's going to talk about communion. He's going to talk about how if you want to follow me, you've got to consume me and be consumed by me. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and you know, that's it. I'm out of here. And he loses all the disciples that day except for his 12. But he knew that they were a fickle folk. And verse 25 says, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And so it wasn't the outward attestation that impressed Jesus. Jesus knows what's going on in the heart. It's classic God relationship stuff. Just like when David was chosen out of all of his brothers, the sons of Jesse, Samuel did not pick, or rather God through Samuel did not pick the oldest good looking brother, these men of valor. They picked the youngest brother that wasn't even there. He was out in the field watching the sheep. The young little guy who was ruddy and good looking. And in all of that story, we know from Samuel that man looks at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And so Jesus knew what was in man. And Jesus still knows what's in man. Do you know today that Jesus knows what's in your heart? Jesus knows the struggle. He knows your pain. He knows the hurt. And in a very rich and good way, you can cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, you know my heart. You know the struggle. You know the pain, the frustration, the fear, the worry, the doubt. And you can give that to the Lord today. You can confess that to the Lord and re receive help and aid from him today. Do you know that the Lord also sees in your heart the hypocrisy? Lord sees in your heart you know, that, that you really have no intention to follow after him. The Lord sees if you are a Judas Iscariot, as he had one in his own midst. 
or as Ephesians chapter 4 shows us, or rather second, or Acts chapter 20, the Ephesian elders would have men raised up from among their own elder team that would be savage wolves. And the Lord knew that that would happen because he knows the hearts. You know, the good news is today you can come to this place and be a savage wolf, and you can confess that to the Lord, and he will remove that from you and make you a lamb. You know, the last verse of chapter 2, the last phrase says that Jesus knew what was in man. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. This will be next week's message. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. That's a great setup for next week's sermon. Jesus knew what was in a man. And you know what? Here's a guy we're going to be introduced to that's going to end up being just an incredible follower of Jesus. And we're going to see how he comes to know Jesus next week and how Jesus shares the gospel with him and the need to be born again. That sets us up for next week. But as we have the worship team come up for this week, we have seen Jesus as the true and better David. Zeal for the house of God, for God's glory, for God's people, for the mission movement across the world has eaten Jesus up, fulfilling Psalm 69.9. We've also seen that Jesus is the true and better temple, that though that temple be destroyed, it would rise from the dead and be standing for the rest of eternity. You can go to Jerusalem today, there's no temple there. Just a bunch of rubble on the western side of the mount. We believe that the temple will be rebuilt one day. But you know, in the, in the end of the time, in the, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, there will be no temple. Because the Lord is there. His presence is with us. And so today we find Jesus to be the true and better David, the Savior of the world. And the one who not only is the true temple, but makes us temples. Corinthians tells us that we are temples and that he dwells within us. And I want to ask you today, have you received Jesus in such a way that he has put his spirit within you? Have you put your trust in Jesus in such a way that Jesus, the Passover lamb, his blood covers over you? Atoning for your sins, washing away your sins, taking away your sins. So that when that day comes and the wrath of God is going across all mankind in judgment, the wrath of God will pass over you. Not because of any awesome, stellar, righteous deed that you have done, but because of the grace of Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. And not only have you put your trust in Jesus, but you've also got the hope of the resurrection. That just as Jesus rose from the dead, the same spirit who rose from him from the dead now dwells in you. And if you were just honest about yourself, like, man, I don't think my sins have been atoned for. I don't think that I've been forgiven of my sins. I have no power over my sins. And man, I certainly don't have the hope of heaven right now. I'm going to ask you, to pray with me if that's you. Right where you're at, you can pray with me. 
And then after I pray this prayer, I want to invite anyone here, maybe it's you who will just pray with me right now, and maybe it's you who've been a Christian for years and years, and yet you've never taken that step of obedience to be baptized. You know, baptism is an outward symbol of an inward work of God. And the Bible says that just as Jesus was crucified and buried in the tomb and rose the third day, that for anyone that would believe on him, that in a, in a symbolic sense, you too were crucified with Christ. Your old sinful man, rebellious, wicked, total tude, got an attitude, living for yourself, living for number one, living for sexual immorality, living for that next fix. That next, next buzz. Living for your career. Not living for Jesus. That old man, that old woman of you is nailed to the cross of Calvary with Jesus through faith. And yet you still live. But the life that you now live, you live for Jesus. And just as you, Jesus was crucified and you too, your flesh is crucified with Christ. You're buried in the waters of baptism. And that just as Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, you too don't stay down in the waters of baptism. You come up and now you have this new life to show the world. And if you as a Christian have never taken that step, I want to encourage you. I believe that so much of what God wants to do in you as a Christian is being hindered in your life. Because you haven't taken one of the most basic elementary steps as a Christian to make a public proclamation that the old Rory, or the old insert your name, is dead. Died with Jesus on the cross. Jesus took my place. But you know what? I'm not staying dead, just like Jesus didn't say dead. I'm rising up to live this new life for him. And so during these last couple songs here, and we might repeat a song from before, I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me of putting your trust in Jesus, having your sins washed away, having newness of life, and I also will invite you to come with me to the waters of baptism. We brought towels with us, and anyone who wanted to make that step, I believe it'll be the first of many incredible steps that you'll take for the Lord. This is one of the most basic elementary ones that I believe opens up the door to so much more for you as you walk in obedience. Let's pray together.